medicines put us into very sensitive and vulnerable states. Initially, it was not about making money. It was just about helping people. Welcome everyone to our Tech Minds Unwind series. My name is Kadi Rawal and I work in tech in the Silicon Valley. And as you all know, we do episodes with a lot of licensed mental health professionals and also tech leaders. In this episode, we'll be joined by Genesee and she's a licensed mental health professional. Hello, Genesee. I'm so glad to have you here. Hi, Vidi. It's really great to be here with you. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, maybe we can just kick in with your background so far and all the work that you do today. Sure. Yeah, I can give a little overview. So I'm a clinical psychologist and I've been in the field of mental health for over 15 years now, um, working in private practice for over a decade. And I also have been fascinated by psychedelics since my early 20s and found them actually very helpful in my own personal growth process after losing a dear friend in a drunk driving accident and spiraling into a deep depression and existential crisis. He had also been someone who had introduced me to psychedelics, and so I started working with psilocybin mushrooms, which helped me to connect to him, to connect myself, and to, over time, over a period of about two or three years, regain a sense of um, purpose and uh, desire to be in this world. And that's actually what oriented me into the field of mental health. And so I ended up going back to grad school and also plugging into whatever opportunities I could find to work with psychedelics. At the time, that work, that meant volunteering at the Zendo Harm Reduction Center at festivals, uh, where you offer support for people having difficult psychedelic experiences. It also meant work, working as an adherence rater for MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. And there I would watch videos of the MDMA for PTSD work and rate the therapists around how well they're adhering to the manual. So both of those experiences gave me a lot of uh, kind of powerful ways to connect with this work. Um, I, I also chose to write my dissertation on MDMA-assisted therapy. And uh, then after I graduated and got licensed, I started envisioning a clinic, a psychedelic-assisted therapy clinic that also incorporated integrative health practices. Really, the idea was to provide an alternative to our current Western medical system that focuses so much on symptoms and uh, doesn't get to the root of the problem and doesn't really look at us as whole people. So instead, I wanted to create a space where people could be seen in the fullness of who they are, knowing that our mind, body, spirit are interconnected and inseparable and to support people in healing at all of those levels. So one of the things that we encountered at Sage Integrative Health was that, you know, an initial part of our mission was to uh, offer services that could be affordable to anyone who needed them. And what we ran into is that it was really hard to find a way to both pay our practitioners what they deserved, cover all of our overhead, and also bring the prices down as low as we needed to, to make our services affordable for those who are lower income. And so in 2019, I got together with several other folks and we co-founded a nonprofit uh, psychedelic therapy clinic, ketamine therapy clinic, and also training center called Sage Institute at the time. And that organization has since uh, rebranded and is now called Alchemy Community Therapy Center. Uh, but they continue to offer lower fee or sliding scale ketamine assisted therapy services. 
we do our best to offer that at Sage Integrative Health as well. Um, and we're still looking for new ways to make this work accessible. It's a deep value of mine. Um, and finally, alongside all of that, I've been working with MAPS uh, for a while as a researcher for their MDMA for PTSD studies. Uh, the studies are now complete and working through FDA approval to get MDMA legalized uh, to treat PTSD. And meanwhile, I continue to work as an educator and a supervisor there. Wow, that's amazing. That's quite an introduction. <laughs> yeah, I had a few questions. Is it like MAPS is the regulatory body that dictates things about psychedelics and whether, I mean, the approval still goes through the FDA, but the studies and things that go on to get them to approval are sort of done by MAPS? MAPS was the first. Um, yeah, they're not the regulatory body. The FDA would be, um, mm -hmm. but MAPS was the for at least for those who are trying to get uh, these drugs approved as a medicine. You know, of course, there's also the decriminalization route, which is important and equally valid. And, you know, that's going to happen more through, you know, the voting process, the legislative process. Um, but SNAPS is one organization, and I think the first who's worked on getting, you know, MDMA specifically approved, but now there are many other organizations, one's called USONA, one's called Compass, and then many smaller organizations that are running trials, looking at different substances to treat different uh, mental health disorders, um, trying to get it legalized. So yeah, lots of people are working on it now, which is good. Yeah, no, I think I just wanted to give context to the view, like, listeners or viewers on like what MAPS exactly is because I ran mm -hmm. into MAPS with obviously the new psychedelic wave that is coming so tell me about like how exciting of a time is this for you having invested so much time and your energy and your soul because you truly believe in it for you like with everything that's happening with the psychedelics and the future of it as well. It's an interesting time you know having been in the field before this new wave or renaissance they're calling it it started, I would say that that started really around 20, right around when we opened Sage, so right around, you know, 2016, 2017, 2018, um, last five or so years. And there have been pros and cons, you know, there was something actually really sweet about being in a small counterculture community of people who are passionate about this thing and passionate about you know the ways that these medicines could help people and would do whatever they could to um you know m move the dial towards uh, or kind of change the the kind of legal setup such that people could access these drugs without needing to go underground and um, put themselves at risk and, you know, since it since this new wave has come, it's been incredible to see the ways that uh, it's no longer counterculture, you know, to see the ways in which it's nearly universally accepted that uh, some of these medicines can help some people. Everyone's got that, you know, uh, aunt who has severe depression, who could potentially be helped by psilocybin mushrooms or that, you know, child or teen who has autism who could potentially be helped by cbd and you know when there are no other uh real good options it's exciting to be able to turn to something that has the potential to really help on the other end and, and that's led to a lot more funding towards you know research and towards clinics like ours that kind of thing 
Um, so a lot of really good things have come out of this wave. I also have some concerns about the ways in which the motives may not be as pure as they initially were. You know, initially it was not about making money. It was just about helping people, really. And it was about, a, you know, strong drive to um, do what was right. And at this point, there is a lot of potential money in, you know, in starting a psychedelic business. And so new people are stepping into the field who don't have strong backgrounds in psychedelics, may not even understand fully what these medicines are, what they do, their, you know, their lineage and um, the ways in which indigenous traditions have, you know, steward the use of many of these medicines for centuries. And um, and instead are stepping in, maybe they had one psilocybin experience, maybe they read Michael Pollan's book and they think it's sort of a miracle cure and are looking to make a lot of money out of starting a psychedelic business. And so, yeah, I just get concerned about the motives of the, of some of the newer players in the field and the potential harm that that could have both on individuals, you know, if, if those companies aren't clear enough about the potential risks involved and the importance of a really safe set and setting, um, a really solid container for the person who's stepping into the work, really good preparation, having a skilled person holding space for them, et cetera. Like there's a lot that's happening in some companies to cut costs, which means cutting out the human element often. And then there also is a strong potential to lose touch with the indigenous traditions who really stewarded it and brought us, you know, brought these medicines to this point. And I think uh, a lot of harm can be done there as well. Yeah. Yeah. For let's say like an average person like me who doesn't know more about psychedelic, but is just hearing this from newspapers and social media. I'm curious to try these. What are your thoughts on like psychedelic opening up for everyone and what should be the things that people should keep in mind because i think as we're talking more about it it's probably good to talk about the safety precautions as well yeah so there's a lot to think about there i would always recommend uh seeking out a guide if it's your first time finding someone who can support you um, in learning how to choose the right medicine for you um, do a medical screening to make sure that your system is it's safe to use that particular medicine in your system and then to help you to prepare adequately and then to be there during the experience to support you, to take care of you if anything comes up, that kind of thing, and then to help you integrate afterwards. So really, if this is your first time, I highly recommend doing the work with a guide or a therapist. There are a few things that I can say, though not everyone's going to do that. Um, so there, you know, there are some things I can say around safety that the thing around kind of a medical check, you can sometimes just go to your doctor and let them know you're interested in that and ask if they can look into it. Not all doctors will be able to do that kind of screening. We do have doctors here at Sage who are happy to just talk with people about, you know, what their intentions are and let them know if there are any kind of concerning, um, indicators within their, their medical profile to be considering. Um, we, we take a harm reduction stance to how we relate to people using psychedelics. And so we're always happy to meet with people, do whatever we can to reduce risk. 
We think that information and education is the best way to keep people safe. So yeah, that's one consideration. There's also a question of which medicine is right for you. And I would need to have a longer conversation with you to really think through that, what your intentions are, what kind of experience you want to have, et cetera. But there are a range of different psychedelics out there that are going to offer very different experiences. And then the I mentioned the set and setting a couple of times already, but that is just so important. The, the setting being the context in which you're going to take the psychedelic. And the set being the kind of inner state that you're coming into the psychedelic experience with everything from your mood in the moment, your feelings about the psychedelic, your feelings about anyone else who's going to be there with you, you know, what you ate previously, all of that. Really wanting to be thinking about how you're stepping into the work and then what the environment is where you're going to be doing it. These medicines put us into very sensitive and vulnerable states. And so things that you might not think about at all in your regular state of consciousness suddenly can become very big and even intrusive in a psychedelic state. And so really just to be thinking about all of the different subtle factors, like are you going to be at your house or your housemates going to be there if you have housemates? Do they know? Um, is there a lot of street noise outside your window? Do you tend to get sensitive in psychedelic states, sensitive to sound? So yeah, lots of different factors there. James Fadiman writes a book. Um, I'm not remembering the name of it right now. And I believe it was based on something that used to be online. I'm not sure if it still is called Entheo Guide. It was a wiki page. You may still be able to find it. And it went over a lot of these things in pretty great detail. And James Fadiman's book has sort of picks up a lot of that. I think it's the Psychedelic Explorer's Guide is the name of his book. Okay, I'll make sure I link it with our podcast here. So I guess the only one that's getting decriminalized is for PTSD, then that's psilocybin, right? Very soon. Apart from that, everything is still not legal to be used in the state of California. Well, actually, so um, MDMA is going through the process of FDA approval. Mm -hmm. Um, So this would be federal approval of MDMA for PTSD. We're not there yet, but we're close. It could happen within a year or so. MAPS is running that study. There are also a couple of organizations working to get psilocybin approved as a treatment for depression, uh, USONA and uh, COMPASS, so, um, alongside a number of other studies. So these are all going the medical, medical route looking for FDA approval. When we talk about decriminalization, so that's going through the legislative process, different states have worked on this already. There are, you know, for example, Oregon has legalized uh, psilocybin-assisted therapy. California has a bill to decriminalize uh, psychedelic plants, and they've named a number of of plants that are included in that. Um, So MDMA would not be because it's synthesized. Um, I think the only plant that's not included is peyote because that's a plant that's protected by certain um, Native American groups and also is uh, at this point environmentally protected as well. Yeah, got it. Okay. And then, so let's jump on to ketamine-assisted therapy. Would you call ketamine a psychedelic as well? And like, what is that about? And then what is the integrative approach that you use at SAGE today? With it. Yeah, so I think of ketamine as a psychedelic. It's a very interesting psychedelic, um, and its effects vary quite a bit depending on what dose that you're using. So 
at our clinic, we use a dose range if we're, if we're working with it sublingually. So holding a lozenge in the mouth for 15 minutes and then swallowing. Um, the dose ranges from about 50 milligrams, 50 to say 150 milligrams sublingual on the low end, to, and then 150 to 400 milligrams sublingual on the high end. And those are two very different experiences. And it, for each person, it's going to vary a little bit what's a lower or higher dose. But a lower dose is almost empathogenic. Some people say it's like a, a shorter version of MDMA, where you it often decreases anxiety, your body starts to feel softer, you, your defenses soften as well, you gain greater access to subconscious or unconscious material sometimes images or visions will come through um, your thoughts might be a little bit less linear you might feel some heart opening a sense of uh, kind of connection warmth joy and that can be a really lovely state in which to do psychotherapy uh, so will the therapist in those cases will uh, sit with the client and be available to process whatever comes up. Sometimes people will want to be more inward for some time and then come out and talk. Other times people want to just kind of talk about what's happening in the moment and make use of this altered state of consciousness to work with their material in a different way. The higher dose experiences are a little bit more like a, a classical psychedelic such as LSD. Much shorter acting. So again, a, a, a kind of if you're just doing one dose of ketamine, the peak effects happen in about an hour, hour and a half sublingually. Um, with a booster dose, that makes it a little longer, so maybe two hours. But with the higher doses, you're generally wearing eye shades, you have music on, you're going inward, and people may have experiences of ego dissolution, of uh, not really being able to feel their body so much anymore, not being aware of what's happening around them in the room and being just very much in this internal world where sometimes they'll have visions come through or entities. Sometimes they'll have a deep mystical experience, connection with all that is or experience of God or consciousness, maybe kind of uh, blending into dissolving into the larger source of consciousness. Um, sometimes those experiences can be a little scary, like when, you know, when our ego starts to dissolve and we're not sure who we are, that kind of in-between state can be a little scary for some people, especially if they don't get good preparation. Uh, but overall, yeah, those experiences can be quite profound uh, for some people. Some people have trouble, especially at very high doses, bringing things back. Uh, ketamine can impact memory. It can be an amnestic, so it can be harder to remember the specifics of what happened at higher doses, which can be frustrating for some people. Um, some people feel like there was some profound healing that happened there, and so they're not too worried about the specifics of what happened. Sometimes I've even heard people say they felt like little like entities were coming in and like weaving my bones back together, weaving my sit my uh, cells back together. Um, so yeah, they can kind of feel this um, healing that's happening in their body, and and then that plays out in the next day or two where they feel just very very different, where their depression has lifted for the first time in years, where they can experience their life in a new way. And, and, and we've seen the ways that this is happening on a neurobiological level as well. 
ketamine tends to increase neuroplasticity. And so new neural pathways are being formed and can be strengthened over time. And how does the wetting process take place if like someone wants to do ketamine assisted psychotherapy today? Is it open for everyone or is there something that needs to be done before they get admitted for this? Yeah, so they do need to meet with a psychiatric provider to do a full evaluation to determine whether they're eligible. Um, there are various things that we're looking for. First of all, because it is, it's a prescription medication, it's legal, it's legally prescribed, um, but it is important for us to um, show that they are, that there is some kind of, uh, you know, justification, some kind of issue that we're using the ketamine to treat. Right now, it's uh, fully FDA approved to treat treatment resistant depression. And then there are many, many people that use it to treat everything from anxiety to trauma to OCD to bipolar disorder to autism, like all kinds of different things. But those are all off label right now. And so it's just important to justify that we're you know, using this medicine for a reason, for a valid reason. Um, and then we also screen for various potential contraindications. So that could include heart problems. It could include a history of UTIs. So ketamine can cause cystitis over time. And so we're, we're looking for people that have that kind of history, typically just in high doses and frequent doses. Um, but it's an important thing to look out for. Sometimes a history of psychosis or mania. We just want to make sure that that's treated with another medication before going into it. Uh, yeah, there, there are various things we're looking out for. Each clinic is a little different in terms of what they're screening for based on the expertise of their particular practitioners. Now let's move to like the main part of this episode, which is like dedicated to people in the tech industry. And since you're based in the Bay Area, and I guess like you have been, and so is Sage, since it's founded in Berkeley, what would you say has been the ratio of people in the tech industry that you've helped so far, or even like, the number that Sage might have helped so far? Yeah, we do have many people coming through Sage in the tech industry. My estimate is that it's somewhere around 30 to 40% of our clients here who work in some way, shape or form in tech. And, you know, that could be anything from a software engineer to a project manager. And have you seen any patterns? In, so what would be the other 60, I guess? Let me first go through that. Oh, all across the board, you know, whether it's... Um, teachers or artists or psychotherapists or business owners or um, activists or, um, you know, some people who are unemployed and, you know, really just looking for help or support students. Uh, we have a very diverse clientele who, you know, come from all walks of life. Yeah. When you said business owners, would it be like startup founders and the others because Silicon Valley? Well, some of that, I was kind of including that in our te in the sort of tech group, but then there are other types of, you know, small business owners, or, okay. you know, that form of, uh, yeah. Have you seen any like specific patterns that people from the tech industry portray or show? in comparison to the others? Some of the things that I've noticed with people in the tech industry is that they're, you know, that there's often significant levels of burnout. Uh, folks are working really, really hard, um, you know, often seven days a week and or 80 hours a week and coming in exhausted and having lost a sense of purpose or meaning sometimes or feeling very fulfilled by their work 
um, but just feeling stressed, anxious, and kind of isolated. So there, there's a real kind of work in one way or the other is dominating their life and keeping them from being able to either do the things they need to do to take care of themselves or, or just really find fulfillment in their lives. You know, another thing that I've noticed is that uh, many folks in that industry spend a lot of time in their heads. You know, they're working at a very cognitive level and often feel pretty disconnected from their emotional life and or from their bodies. How do you help people cope with the patterns that you just explained or any insights that you might have for our listeners who experience being a lot in their head, not being able to feel their emotions? Yeah, maybe we can just start with that one first. I find that to be true with many people, not just those in the tech industry. So it's something that I work with a lot. And so I want to, in our, you know, in our sessions, be really careful to, I can be a cognitive person as well. And so not get caught up in just the talking about, but instead really help people to come back into the present moment come back into the relationship that's right here between us, come back into the room, come back into their bodies. So that can look a lot of different ways. It can include um, helping people to develop mindfulness or meditation practices. It can come from guided meditations that help bring people back into their bodies. There are a few different exercises that I use that not only bring people into their bodies, but then help them work with the whatever it is that they notice. Typically, there's an area of constriction or some kind of sensation that they can locate in their chest, say, or their stomach or their solar plexus or their throat. And so learn to relate to um, how the body speaks to us, which is not in words necessarily. It's in sensations. And then it can also be in images or you know, sometimes words, but we have to really be listening because it's subtle. Of course, you know, embodiment practices such as everything from yoga to Pilates to, you know, exercise, et cetera, are, are really important to kind of homework and more just support people in identifying where they want to change. And But yeah, it, a lot of it is really the, the work that we're doing together to help them come back into um, into the present moment. Sometimes for me too, I work relationally, which means that I'm looking for what's happening in the, the relational field between us. Um, how are they responding to me? How am I responding to them? And, and speaking to those kinds of things as they come up. And then ketamine can be very supportive of this too. At the lower doses that I was mentioning, though it is a dissociative, which means that it um, dissociates us from our bodily experience and sensations. At lower doses, I've actually found it to be something like a, a re-associative, I've called it, where it helps us, it tunes, turns down the volume on emotional and physical pain such that we can regain access to places that the body holds old trauma or old um, past emotion that we have, we've been dissociated from suddenly that um, comes back online and allows us to feel maybe for the first time something that we've been holding for decades. So I find ketamine to be an incredible resource for re-embodiment. Okay. Yeah, that's what I was going to get to with my next question about, uh, you also said people feel isolated. And yeah, I think there's a lost sense of purpose for a lot of people about, is this what I want to do long term? What is my purpose in life? For all of those people, would you say the spiritual way through psychedelics or like ketamine-assisted therapy is an answer? 
It can certainly be a great support. Yeah, I've walked many people in the tech industry struggling with those very questions through this process. Um, For some of them, definitely with some of the things that I was mentioning, as people start to get more in touch with their bodies and with their inner psychological life, their emotions, they start to become clear on what it is that they really want and need. And for some people, what they really want and need is to slow down. They need to have more time in their lives. They need to take better care of themselves. They need to yeah, institute uh, routines into their lives that allow them to take care of themselves. And doing that is enough to be able to maintain the work that they're already doing and enjoy it in a different way. Um, and, and some of that too needs to involve more social time, you know, more time to connect with people, with loved ones, meeting new people, et cetera. So just finding more balance in their life really. And that can bring back a sense of passion and creativity with the work that they're doing. Some other people, as they start to tune into their kind of inner parts, I, I also do a, a type of work called internal family system that works with uh, different parts. Um, of ourselves, we all have different parts of ourselves. But some people, as they get in contact with certain parts of themselves, they learn that they have a, a passion that they'd never really known about before—a passion for art, or for writing, or um, you know, whatever else. Just something that um, has been hidden inside of them that they had not been connected to prior. And in coming to realize that. There's then an important integration process of, okay, so there's that inspiration. How do you now navigate your life going forward, given what you're learning about yourself? And sometimes that involves making space to cultivate that passion and learn whether this is actually a a route towards a different lifestyle and a complete career shift. For some people, it is. Some people really need to step out, you know, the environment that they're in. It's not healthy for them. It's not fulfilling them and they need something else. Got it. Okay. And can you explain more of what internal family system is exactly? It's a model that was developed by a man named Dick Schwartz who worked with, who did family therapy, worked with actual family systems and started to see that with some people who had pretty severe um, mental health issues, including eating disorders, and started to see that see that we do all have these different parts and that sometimes the parts that are within us uh, relate in a very similar way to uh, the different members of a family system. And so he developed a method that supports people in getting to know the different parts. He divided them into three types of parts, the managers that help us to get along in our day to day and, you know, basically to live and live and function in the world. There are the exiles, which are the young parts that hold our trauma and our challenging experiences, feelings that were too overwhelming in the moment of a traumatic experience and so needed to be split away so that we could keep living, keep existing, keep functioning. Um, And then there are what he calls the firefighters, which are the ones that come in in moments of crisis to like put out the fire. So, you know, they often cause people to drink or use drugs or do other compulsive behavior. And so, yeah, the the process of therapy involves getting to know all three of these types of parts, helping them to identify what it is that they're needing, what needs to be expressed and starting to integrate all of them into a healthier family, internal family system. Got it. So it's like each person has three or four of these and then it's identifying which one is playing out at once yeah it may be many more than three or four (laughs) okay 
Yeah, that's very cool. That's something new I learned altogether. But yeah, I think that's all the questions I had for the episode. Do you think there's anything else that you'd like to add? The only thing that's coming to mind is that I know that you know, in our society in general, but also maybe especially in the tech world, there can be a bias against mental health, mental illness and therapy. And, you know, there, there may be strong pressures to hide that you're struggling and also to not seek help. I, I know that's not true in every environment, but I think it is true in many. And, you know, these are also in environments that really unfortunately promote stress and anxiety and depression and and so you know i really hope that there are things being done within the tech world to try to shift that and i guess i just want to put the message out there that you can't live on this planet you can't live on this planet without struggling with some form of mental health challenges you know everyone has felt anxiety at one point or another most people have felt depressed at one point or another. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just such a natural response to coping with the world that we live in and a very natural response to coping with the intense pressures of working in the tech world. And so, yeah, I just, I just want to say that and that, you know, feeling stressed, having insomnia, being depressed, whatever else is not something you need to hide. Uh, and it's not doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with you. I just encourage people to seek out help, and there is good help out there. No, thank you for adding that. That's the entire goal of this podcast and everything that I'm trying to do is for people to normalize not only their victories, productivity, and success, but also at the same time if they're struggling to come out and address that, so that people can stop one upping each other in terms of how much they achieve, but actually embrace the real emotions of being human and things that they're also struggling with so beautiful yeah yeah i'll just add to that that you know just to kind of relate around all of this i hit a period of major burnout about two years ago you know after founding one business after the other and then writing a book it was just like exhausting and i all of a sudden couldn't think at the same levels that i could before i couldn't work as much as i was working before i was exhausted all the time and you know serious brain fog and i I didn't know what was wrong with me it was really frustrating and i ended up seeing our naturopath here and getting some labs done and and finding that i had diagnosable adrenal fatigue so i i was i had literal uh, clinical burnout and i i needed to address that and so that it took me a little while to take that seriously, but I eventually I did. And I really slowed down my life. I've stopped taking on so many projects and I've gotten to a place where things are much more balanced and manageable. And I feel like a completely different person. I have my mind back. I can think straight again and um, I'm sleeping better. So, so yeah, it's, it, it happens to the best of us. You know, it's, it's part and parcel of being super ambitious and productive and successful is that in order to do that in this world, many times we just push ourselves beyond what, what, what's healthy and we need to kind of pause and come back and realign. And it can take a while. It took me a couple of years to really sort of land back into a healthy place. Yeah, no, thank you for sharing that. I think I love that you mentioned that it didn't take you like, days or months but it took you years to be able to come to terms with it being a therapist yourself and now you're in a better place so i think that's important for people to know that things can take time and it's okay to let 
things be or like take a break for however long it is and it, it takes time to come mm. to terms with it as well absolutely yeah thank you for all the wonderful insights genesee this has been amazing i think with that I, you're so welcome yeah i can close this podcast out um yeah i think great I- thank you vidhi